Amen. Well, if you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Ruth and chapter 3. This is without doubt the most difficult chapter in the book of Ruth to preach. I almost entitled the sermon, How Not to Find a Husband. But please listen carefully. This is indeed the Word of God. And before we read, let's pray and ask God's blessing, shall we? Father in heaven, we come into your presence this evening thanking you for your Word and the way it weaves the story of grace through the lives of Old Testament heroes and heroines and leads us and shows us, O God, how you lead us all so often behind the scenes in our lives. And we pray this evening, O Lord, as our congregation face different issues in their lives, O Lord, problems, burdens, fears, regrets, uncertainties, O Lord, grant that you would wrap them up in the warm certainty of your chesed love, your steadfast loving kindness, that you will never abandon them, that you will never forsake them that you be with us always, even to the end of the age. And we offer these prayers this evening in Jesus Christ's name. Help us, O God. Amen. This is the Word of God, Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he is, where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight... The man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy and excellent woman. And now, it, it is true that I am a Redeemer, yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if He will redeem you, good, let Him do it. But if not, if He is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning." So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out 
So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, "'How did you fear? How did you fare, my daughter?' Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, "'These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, "'You must not go back to your uh, must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law.' She replied, "'Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out.' For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but this is the Word of God. It endures forever. Well, navigating your way through life and finding the will of God as you do is seldom a straightforward matter. It's not, often, I think, not so much that we find the will of God, but that God's will happens to find us infallibly and certainly. But often the next step is far from clear. It's almost never risk-free, and we often find ourselves wondering what to do in the meantime. And yet, those of us who are older, as you look back over your life, we can testify to the younger ones here this morning that as I look back over my life, and as I'm sure every older person here can say as they look back over their life, um, God has led us step by step all of the way. Sometimes his hand is obvious. Most of the time his hand is not obvious. It's behind the scenes, and it can be very difficult. And there are some nail-biting moments as we make our way from whence to whither. And I'm reminded often of John Flavels, or Flavel, depending how you pronounce it, the Puritan, um, who said, God's providence is like Hebrew. It's best read backwards. That's That's a warning shot to all of you. Sometimes you can, in an open door before you, you can say, oh, it's God's providence, but not always. An open door can be an opportunity, but it can also be a temptation, and it takes great wisdom to discern the one from the other. But as you look back over your life, I can see at, at, at innumerable steps in my own life how God's providence has left me safe, led me safe thus far. And if, you're, if you entrust yourself into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ, I can promise you, He will do for you what He has done for me and every other older one here who have walked with Him, or rather, He has walked with us through many dangers, toils, and snares. Um, what are we to learn about this uh, from this passage? Apart from, please silence your phones. Um, what, what are we to learn in this passage? The last time I preached this passage, I called it In the Midnight Hour, and I, I looked at it more at, at, um, from a perspective of finding God's will in your life. Tonight, I want to look at it um, from a different perspective. What do we learn about God in this passage, which is always a good way to, to, to approach any Scripture? What, what do I learn from God in this passage or about God? And there are a number of things. First of all, we see in this passage that God is the God of delays and roadblocks. He's the God of delays and roadblocks. The barley and wheat harvest are now over. So about 68 weeks, scholars tell us, have passed from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3. And you might not realize that if you didn't know that detail. You might just think chapter 3 was the next day, right? No, a couple of months have gone by. And evidently, Boaz has got the slows, and Naomi um, 
was kind of hoping he would be a bit, you know, quicker off the mark. And we don't know why he wasn't. Perhaps he knew that the, there was another kinsman in the wings who was nearer and whose duty it was before his, and responsibility and privilege to help Ruth. It wasn't just a duty, it was a privilege, though there was cost to it. Uh, and maybe Boaz was giving his other brother opportunity to kind of take action to redeem this lady. We don't know, but whatever the case, chapter 2, there's this hope of romance in the air. Boaz, as her, you know, Naomi, uh, Ruth happens upon Boaz's land, and Boaz is so gracious to her. He provides for her all this food and so forth and gives her this open-ended carte blanche invitation to stay by his men, orders them to protect her, and gives, and has, gives her easy access to the water and so forth and, and the gleanings of his fields. But in the intervening two or three months, nothing else has happened. If you like, Ruth has given Boaz her cell phone number, and he hasn't even bothered to text her, never mind call her. To make matters worse, there's no mention of God in these verses. Boaz, later on in the chapter, wishes the blessing of God upon Ruth, but there's no evidence of God speaking in this situation. Nomi isn't reading her Bible and God giving her a step-by-step, blow-by-blow account of what to do next or what's going to happen next. And that's often the way you and I find ourselves. You, you, you're reading through the Psalms, you're reading through Leviticus or some other portion of the Bible, and it's, it's not really helping in your current situation, the choices you have to make and so forth and so on. And it can be a fearful time, and God sometimes can seem very absent and distant. And that shouldn't surprise us, of course, because in the Psalter, which is God's hymn book for us, um, and remember from, from this morning in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, Ephesians 5 actually, but Colossians 3, there's this sense of the Spirit-filled man or woman. Their voice is always full of psalms, singing to one another, be filled with the Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that the more full we are of the Spirit of God, the more full we are of psalm-like language. And that doesn't always mean we're singing, you know, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Sometimes it can be Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I take counsel in my soul day and night? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Spurgeon calls it the howling psalm because how long, how long, how long, it sounds almost howling, right? And sometimes the Spirit-filled man is left singing psalms like Psalm 13 or psalms like Psalm... um, 88, which is a psalm without any hope whatsoever. It's a lament that begins in trouble and ends the final word in darkness. Life without hope, or life without meaning, death without hope, and questions without answers in this psalm. And normally in those kind of laments, the end of the psalm ends better than it began. But Psalm 88, it just remains in the darkness. And yet, as Alec Matier says, the lesson is clear that even in the darkness, the, 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 the faithful soul is, is groping after the God who seems to be hiding from him. The answer is always to turn to God with a song in your mouth. And more often than not, as Cowper's famous hymn reminds us, or Cooper's famous hymn, sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. Tis the Lord who rises with healing upon his wings. But sometimes God will leave you, and you won't be able to find Him, at least not obviously or palpably. 
You might feel a bit like the prophet of Baal, thinking, what do I do? Do I call him louder? Or is he gone on a holiday? Where is he? Right? And yet, who can deny in Ruth chapter 3 that God is very much present? He's not mentioned, but He's there. And if you're here this evening and you're trusting in the Lord Jesus as a Christian, I want to assure you of that. There'll be times in your life when with Job you'll say, I go forward, but I cannot find Him. He acts on the left, I cannot behold Him. He turns on the right, I cannot see Him, right? It's like at a campfire and you, you hear b- beasts in the forest around you moving, but you can't see them. Is it a squirrel or a deer or a hungry bear? You don't quite know. But your fears will tell you the worst, of course. But you don't know. And sometimes God's like that. He's in, the, he's in the background. You know He's moving, but you can't quite see where He is or what He's doing. And yet Job says, but He knows the way that I take. And when He has tried me, I will come forth as gold. Right? And so I want to encourage you this evening, no matter what you feel, God is there in the background, and He is leading you how quietly, how quietly the wondrous gift is given, we finished last week with from the little town of Bethlehem. So, God is the, the God of delays and roadblocks. He's also the God of daring faith. Now, I wrestle with this because Naomi's plan is… Um, well, there's that meme you've maybe seen before, when in stupid stop stupiding, right? And I almost want to title this, God is also, God is the God of stupid and stupiding, because Naomi's plan is very far from wise. Naomi's obviously beside herself. Um, She's concerned that if she doesn't do something, Boaz will do nothing, and the opportunity will slip through her fingers. And so she takes the bull by the horn, or perhaps better, she takes Boaz by the toes, and sends Ruth off on a mission. Now, verse 5 and 6 make it very clear that Ruth, Boaz, Ruth is not giving, or Naomi is not giving Ruth gentle advice here. She's not giving Ruth a suggestion. All that you do, I will say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Ruth is a sensible woman. Um, She departs from the script later on. She actually asks Boaz to marry her, which was a brave move, Um, but it was an awkward moment. Uh, But but one of the, you know, Ruth here is an excellent woman. Boaz calls her that. And you remember we made the observation before that the end of the book of Proverbs ends with an excellent woman who can find Ishet Chayil, an excellent woman who can find, is the Hebrew. And um, Boaz calls Ruth an excellent woman here. Uh, It's the same exact phrase. And in the Hebrew Bible, the next book after Proverbs is Ruth. And so it's almost as if the the person weaving together the text of the Hebrew Old Testament um, is making the point that what's an excellent wife look like? She's a, a woman like Ruth. And Ruth is a girl, she doesn't charge ahead of the wise or sometimes less than wise counsel of her elders. She, she is a woman under authority, and she makes wise decisions by listening to the counsel of her elders. 
even though sometimes the wisdom of that counsel can seem um, less than fully wise, shall we say. What could possibly have gone wrong with this plan? Well, do the math. A sweet-smelling, good-looking girl wakes up a man in the middle of the night who has at least some alcohol on board, and she's liable to get a good deal more than she bargained for. And Naomi's counsel is strange. He will tell you what to do. Now, I think a lot of commentators go off on this and say that Naomi is really taking leave of her senses, and really anything is possible, right? Um, A lot of good men. And I, I think that's I think that's unduly censorious of Naomi. Boaz's reputation precedes him. Um, So I I don't think Naomi expects Boaz to take advantage of Ruth, but it was at least a possibility, right? Especially when you realize that threshing floors were were a place traditionally associated with loose women where whores and prostitutes earned their wages. So in Hosea 9 verse 1, for example, God says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. So evidently, threshing floors were a place where prostitutes did their work, right? And there's often some spiritual connotation as they celebrated the fertility of the harvest and so forth and so on, and we'll just leave that there. Um, and so, going to a th- for a lady to go at the thresh- to a threshing floor at night was, at the very least, risky. And especially whenever Boaz implies in the previous chapter that the, the, the fields of Bethlehem weren't exactly a safe place for young women during the day, one can only imagine what the threshing floors could have been in the midnight hour. Also, it was risky. It could have ruined Ruth. Remember, Moabites were, shall we say, renowned for sexual immorality. They began in an act of incense in the middle of the night with another half-drunk or fully-drunk man, um, and out comes um, the Moabites um, in Lot's drunken, drunken nocturnal liaison with his daughters. And then as well, the Moabites were famous or infamous for their act in, uh, with Balaam and Balak, corrupting the, the, the children of Israel with Be'el Peor in that nasty season. And so, the Moabites had a fairly shady reputation in this regard. And so, for her to go to the threshing floor in the middle of the night, I mean, it was a, it was a, a plan fraught with obvious risks. It could have ruined Ruth, and it could have also ruined Boaz. And yet, I go with the more positive, daring faith, because every actor in this passage is working with selfless regard. Naomi is working for the good of her daughter-in-law. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now, remember the whole redemption thing in Israel with the Goel and the kinsman redeemer, that was designed not to redeem a widow. It was designed to redeem the dead husband. So this whole redemption thing is about the redemption of Elimelech's line, because if you die, if your line has no male heir, your possession is lost literally to the sands of Palestine. And that's the equivalent in the Old Testament of losing your salvation because the Jews tied 
salvation. You wanted your seed to be there until Messiah came and raised you from the dead, and so forth and so on. And so, um, the redemption motif is focused on Elimelech, but Naomi's concerned about Ruth, not herself, right? Which is selfless. And then Ruth also, she's being selfless. She goes after Boaz, and Boaz himself is amazed. He says, you've made this last kindness, more about that in a second, greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. You could have gone after some young handsome buck, and you could have gone after some young rich buck as well. And you came after me, Boaz said, with aforementioned baldness, bifocals, bunions, and bulges. And that's commendable, right? Um, Because she's doing things properly. More about that in a second. And then Boaz, too, um, he is concerned for her, and, and uh, when she steps out in faith and beyond the plan, she doesn't say, doesn't wait and say, well, Boaz, what do you think we should do next? She says, I want you to marry me, Boaz. Take me under the shadow of your wing, right? Um, she's taking her initiative here in faith, nailing her colors to the mast, being very clear to Boaz that she's not looking for um, a night of pleasure. She wants a husband for life, Right? And she's being very clear in that regard. And Boaz concedes, right? And the Bible's word for this kind of behavior is chesed. And it's there in verse 10. You have made this last chesed greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And the word chesed means, of course, it's used in the Hebrew for stubborn, steadfast, covenantal love. It's, 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 um, it's God's determination to be kind to you and to be good to you no matter what it costs Him, no matter what burden He must carry, no matter what place He must go, God will be kind to you. And for Christ, God's chesed love, there was hell to pay for that, literally. So, it's a word of costly, stubborn, principled love, and it defines God's relationship to us. It's God's commitment to us vertically, right? But it also describes how we treat one another covenantly, because as Kyle often says, forgiven people are forgiving, from um, the Sermon on the Mount, forgiving people are forgiven, um, blessed are the merciful, for you shall receive mercy, not that you earn mercy by showing mercy, but by the fact you show mercy shows that you've received mercy, because when forgiveness comes to a person, it changes them, and they become forgiving, right? And so, like Hesed, when God's Hesed love comes into a person's life, it changes them. It, it, it flows out of them. They're never, you're never a dead end to Hesed. It comes to you, and it flows from you, which is exactly what Micah meant if you turn forward um, in Micah, Chapter 6, that famous passage, Micah 6, 68, and I'm going to read the New American Standard because I've memorized this in that version, and if I read the ESV, it just confuses my brain. Um, Micah 6, 68, with what shall I come to the Lord and buy myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And God says, no, no, 
In the New Testament, God says, I'll actually present my firstborn for your rebellious acts. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love chesed, and to walk humbly with your God. The, the people who know God, they love chesed. They love chesed. They have this stubborn, principled commitment to be kind and to be good to the covenant community around them and to other people as well beyond the covenant community, but especially we do good to all, but especially to the household of faith, right? And Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi are all acting in chesed fashion in this matter. So, that does take the edge off Naomi's stupidity. Not completely, but it does take the edge off it, right? Now, that, the principle here is not, as long as you're being chesed-like, you can be stupid. No, it does not mean that. So, please do not take this to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt the next harebrained thought that comes into my mind, because I think I've got God-glorifying motives. But it does tell you, so it shouldn't encourage you to be stupid before you're stupid, but it can give you some comfort to thank God that the full consequences of your stupidity have never come home to roost in this life. How many of us have done stupid things? Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but yeah, both hands. Um, and feet up in the air. Um, and yet, hasn't God, couldn't things have gone much worse? Haven't we done things in the past and it could have gone so much worse? And yet, God spared us. And that's the God of, of Ruth. As Naomi and Ruth step out in a daring act of faith that is so daring it's almost, and even beyond almost, actually stupid, yet God is there being gracious to them, upholding them, and sustaining them, and protecting them from complete ruination. So he's the God of delays and roadblocks. He's the God of daring faith. He's also the God of decorum and order. Now, there's an awful lot about this story that is not decorous and ordered. Um, there's a, at the very least, I mean, there's a lot of double entendres here. The verbs uncover the feet. That is a, a euphemism, like we say about going to the powder room, but I don't know many women who powder themselves in the powder room, right? It's, 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 but it's, it's better than saying the reality. So we speak of powder room or the water closet, right? Um, in polite society. And uncovering the feet was an innuendo. Um, to uncover the feet, so covering the feet was spoken about going to the toilet like Echid went to cover his feet, right? And uncovering the feet, uncovering nakedness is always a shady term. Now, it doesn't say she uncovered his nakedness, it does say he uncovered his feet, and that, that at least begs questions, right? And then to lie down with someone as well is at least in innuendo. Now, I do not believe there was any sexual imp impropriety here, but the language just stresses how risky this behavior was um, for Ruth. And even at the end of the passage there, you see that God is a God of good order, right? So, he says, lie down until morning. Don't go in the middle of the night. And she gets up, and he tells the men who were there, do not tell anyone there was a woman here this evening. 
Uh, and then um, she goes home. And there's, there's wisdom there, right? Um, because appearances matter. And, and so many, I've heard so many young people, they don't, you know, um, they don't care about appearances. Um, like, like, like maybe you're a teenager here, a teenage girl, and maybe there's times you've been invited to a party and, and you're going to stay over and there are boys and girls there. And, and maybe your mom and dad says, no, I don't want you staying over at night. And you, and you say, mom, don't be so... You know, that's so, that's so you know, old-fashioned. We're not going to do anything, mom. I mean, it, it's fine. But you've got to realize that, 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 that appearances do matter. Avoid the appearance of evil, the Bible says. There was a, a couple I knew in medical school, and they were engaged, Ivan and Carol, godly couple, and um, Ivan would go, and a lot of the female medical students lived in the nurses' flats, which were almost, well, they were entirely female, at the Royal Belfast Hospital for Sick Children and the Royal Victoria Hospital. And she would stay there in the nurses' flats. And he would pick her up in the morning to go to classes. But he would wait in the car outside, and she would come down the lift and come out to the car. And you might say, well, why didn't he walk up to Well, if he'd walked up to her room and then maybe gone in and had a cup of coffee with her and came out, people might have seen them leaving the room in the morning together and wondered, did they sleep there all night together? And that would have been at least the appearance of evil. And you might say, oh, they're being silly and fuddy-duddy. Well, only if you don't care whether people will talk about your integrity. If your integrity doesn't matter, then do whatever you want. But God's people have got to be wise, Right? And we avoid the appearance of evil, which is one of the reasons why I don't put a fish sign in the back of my car. Because I recognize if ever I put a fish sign in the back of my car, I better obey every single road law there is. If ever I'm speeding because I'm late somewhere, which would never happen, of course, but if ever, if ever that did happen, people would see me and go, you know, oh, when you're pulling out of the church here and you drive off at, you know, 240 miles an hour down the road, or if you cut somebody off, if you're pulling out of the church and there's a car coming and you pull out and they've got a brake, they're going to think, idiot driver, idiot church. And that's kind of, you don't want that, do you? And so you've got to be, you, God is concerned about these things, and this passage stresses that, and it's, it stresses it, I think, in a favorable fashion. And even Boaz's concern, Boaz could have said, let's get hitched. He doesn't. There's another kinsman redeemer, and it appears in the next chapter he's not nearly as principled as Boaz. He's not nearly as concerned about risk, certainly, and doesn't want the cost of redemption. There's always a cost someone's got to pay. And so, but Boaz knows, I think, he's a better man than this man, but he's still got to give the man the opportunity to stand up and, and redeem her. And of course, there's always that memory of Onan in the Old Testament who was the kinsman redeemer, but he had all of the privileges. He had sex with the girl again and again and again and again and again, but he would, he um, practiced coitus interruptus, shall we say, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, um, in a somewhat decorous manner this evening. And so, he had the pleasure of sex without, without producing any fruit from the union, and he did this to this girl again and again and again, and it so vexed God that God Himself killed him, Right? But for Ruth, you, you were in that position. A guy could do that to you, and you'd, you'd have no recourse. And so, it had been so easy for Ruth to go, please, I'd much rather marry you than this guy. And maybe Boaz would say, I would like to marry you too, because I want to be married for a long time, and I'm not. And so, this is a good idea. But no, Boaz follows divinely prescribed order. There's a nearer kinsman redeemer, and we're going to follow that. 
He's also in the fourth place. Where was the fifth place? Fourth place. One, two, three, fourth place. He's also the God of delightful rebukes. Um, in the morning, Boaz says, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures. That's 80 pounds of grain. <laughs> Poor girl, like, I mean, like, you imagine Ruth, it's almost comical, carrying 80 pounds of grain on her back. Um, it's, it's quite a CrossFit workout right there. Um, and she goes to the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, and notice she remembered to tell Naomi this, you must not go back literally empty to your mother-in-law. Heard that word empty before? Remember chapter 1? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has, has dealt bitterly with me. And she said this publicly, of course. Everybody knew this. I went out full. He has brought me back empty. Now, I don't think, I don't think Naomi was passive-aggressively rebuking Naomi. Right? I don't think he was doing that. Sorry, Boaz was passively-aggressively rebuking Naomi. But I think perhaps God might have been passive, uh, deliberately just saying, Naomi, how empty do you feel right now, Naomi? You're not quite as empty as you thought you were. Your worst fears didn't really come true, are they? Because you, you're, when, you, when you're following me, and more importantly, when I'm following you, you're never completely empty, and you're certainly never always empty. And these 80 pounds of grain that, that come to the woman who fled the land in, in, in famine and came back with nothing but Ruth behind her and all the fears in her soul, and yet God here, just in this little kiss from heaven, shows that Naomi wasn't nearly as empty as she feared. And that's always true for all of God's children. When you have nothing, but you still have Christ, you have a very great deal indeed, don't you? He never completely abandons you. You may feel empty, but feeling empty and being empty are two very different things. Feeling forsaken and being forsaken are two very different things. Ask Jesus. He didn't just feel forsaken, he was forsaken, so that you never would be. Never. And God has delightful rebukes. And then we come full circle. At the end, he's the God of delays and roadblocks. The last verse, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. Naomi and Ruth are stressing out. Because everybody wants, I mean, there's got to be a reason why Naomi didn't suggest to go to the nearer Redeemer. Yes, it was partly providential. They bumped into Boaz on the fields, or Ruth did. But I think it was also character-wise. I think, I think everybody knew that Boaz was the better man. And yet God leaves them waiting to see how the matter turns out. But as they're waiting, doesn't Boaz give us a beautiful picture of Jesus? He's the kinsman redeemer who takes, Naomi says to him, will, will you take me under the shadow of your wings? And in the New Testament, Jesus uses exactly the same language 
weeping over a city who wanted nothing to do with him. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets, how I long to gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And so this evening, as you're sitting in your pew this evening, do you really think Jesus will say that over people who didn't want that to do with him? And if you go to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, will you take me under the shadow of your wings? Do you really think he's going to say no? And then the last verse, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Jesus? The man will not rest. His whole life, he didn't rest, didn't give up, didn't give up the ghost until he could say, it is On Twitter the other week, I saw this. Someone said, preach a sermon in three, three to five words. I didn't even try. But the best answer I said, I thought, was tetelestatai. It is finished. It is finished. One word. Christ finished. He didn't rest. His food and his drink was to do the will of God, which was to rescue your soul, and he didn't rest. And on your worst day, and on your best day, and on your last day, when you're lying on your deathbed, and the devil, and, and the devil says to you, are you safe? Are you really safe? Aren't you just a little bit frightened that you'll slip through the chesed fingers of God into hell, and you could look the devil in the eyes and say, oh no, my Savior will not rest until it's, the matter is fully accomplished. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for a heavenly Boaz. And we pray, O oh Lord, this evening for every member of this congregation those who know you and those who know you not. Lord Jesus, will you move as you so want to do as the Word of God is preached and open the hearts of men and women and boys and girls to receive a Boaz who is weeping over them in a true and manly sense, how I long to gather you as a hen gathered her chicks, as Boaz gathered Ruth, how I long to gather you under my wings but you are not willing. But Lord Jesus, are you not able to change the will? Does your word not say, my people will be willing in the day of my power? And so we pray this evening, Lord Jesus, come as you do and make us each one ready and willing to embrace you as you're freely offered to us in the gospel. We offer these prayers because we believe that you have a holy passion to see of the travail of your soul and be satisfied. And we know, Lord God, there are parents here who are desperately worried about the souls of their children, who feel their children are being ripped out of their embrace by the devil himself. 
But Lord Jesus, greater is he that is in this place than he that is in the world. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, to save them and have mercy. We offer these prayers in Christ's name. Amen.